There's a line in that psalm that caused me to select it before this sermon. For lifting up comes not from east or west or south, but God is judge. He raises one and puts another down. And that's really a big part of half the lesson before us this evening. We're going to look at Articles 15 and 16 from our Canons of Dort, which talk about, first of all, reprobation, which is a unique doctrine that we need to consider, but then also our response to this teaching of election and reprobation, especially of reprobation, and how it should lead us to a particular attitude, a particular action. But before we do that, I'd like to read with you Romans chapter 11. Now, Romans 11 is part of a three-chapter section. Paul, having discussed already how God sent Jesus to deliver us, to cleanse us from our sin, to effect an adoption so that we could become sons and daughters of God, and in fact exercising sovereignty over all our lives so that All of our circumstances might be joined together to mold us into the image of Christ. He now pauses because a question is going to be raised in the minds of the people reading in Rome. This would have been a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles. And the question would have arisen, wait a minute, what Jesus came to do, he did as a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. How does that fit with the Gentiles and how does that fit with the Jews who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, who don't acknowledge Him as the long-awaited Messiah? And so chapters 9 through 11 deal with that and in the process they lay out a beautiful uh, examination and presentation of the doctrine of election. It's in the midst of that that we come to chapter 11. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. We're going to pause there just a moment. There's been a lot of confusion with the war in Israel. This isn't the main point of this text, but it bears... Noting in this, at this point, a uh, lot of confusion about Israel in the Middle East. What he's saying here is that God has not given up Israel, but rather that those who truly are Israel are those who, born of Abraham's line, accept Christ. And as we'll see in the text that follows, those who reject Christ 
Well, they reject Abraham. They reject their line. They reject their family and they reject all the promises of God. They are no longer true Israel. They are true Israel who accept Christ, whether born of Abraham or grafted in from among the Gentiles. That's the true Israel, not a geopolitical group. Now, that doesn't mean that we might not want to ally ourselves with them um, as one of the few that doesn't want to kill us in the Middle East. But that's not a spiritual reality. That's a geopolitical consideration. The true Israel, Paul is saying, God is saying, are those who accept Christ. They are the remnant whom he has chosen and preserved for himself. And that's important for us because that means that we are true Israel. Listen to the rest of what he says. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. Now, our reading from the canons this evening is Articles 15 and 16, where we read, Moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings it out the more clearly for us in that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. Those, that is, concerning whom God, on the basis of His entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decision, to leave them in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish them, having been left in their own ways and under just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins, in order to display His justice. And this is the decision of reprobation, which does not at all make God the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, but rather it's fearful, irreproachable, just, judge, and avenger. Those who do not yet actively experience within themselves a living faith in Christ or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorying in God through Christ, but who nevertheless use the means by which God has promised to work these things in us, such people ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to count themselves among the reprobate, but rather they ought to continue diligently in the use of means." to desire fervently a time of more abundant grace and to wait for it in reverence and humility. On the other hand, those who seriously desire to turn to God, to be pleasing to Him alone and to be delivered from the body of death but are not yet able to make such progress along the way of godliness and faith as they would like, such people ought much less to stand in fear of the teaching concerning reprobation since our merciful God has promised that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick, and that he will not break a bruised reed. However, those who have forgotten God and their Savior Jesus Christ and have abandoned themselves wholly to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh, such people have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching as long as they do not seriously turn to God. Amen. Beloved congregation chosen by God in Christ, when I was young, I once heard a friend of our family say something that made me cringe. They had two adopted sons, and one had just been sent to jail, not for the first time. My parents offered sympathy at this turn of events, but she just shrugged and said, blood will out. Dad asked what she meant, and she explained, well, you know, his birth parents were rotten, they never made a good decision. Blood will out. We can't expect anything different. I deeply disliked that explanation. Didn't seem fair to me to give up on someone based on the poor behavior of the parents who didn't even raise him. In fact, it seemed to me a cop-out and a way of giving up on someone who had disappointed you. 
as I've matured, well, frankly, I continue to believe that she was wrong. Mostly. A child whose parents were rotten, but who is raised by someone who is godly and good, that good nurture, God will use to bless that person whom they've adopted, that child they've adopted. And that nurture is not going to be overcome by the genetic nature received from the birth parents, with one exception. And that's the nature that comes from our first parents. Because when Adam sinned, he twisted and corrupted our nature. And that's not true for some children of adoption. Folks, that's true for every last one of us. And if we are left to our own devices, if God does not powerfully amazingly intervene, that is the blood that will out. That is the nature that will arise. The twisted, corrupted nature of Adam. And that's what brings us to our subject. Few people fail to cringe when they first encounter, if they're not raised among it, when they first encounter the doctrine of reprobation. And often it's because it is explained clumsily to them. As though God somewhat randomly selects certain individuals to cast into hell without any real consideration of what they've done or the life they've lived or the desires they've nurtured. As though they don't have a choice in the matter, they're just consigned to hell and they really had no choice from the start, no chance from the start. But that's a wrong understanding of reprobation. And frankly, it's a wrong understanding of how God works among men. If we understand reprobation aright, however, well, not only does it make perfect logical sense, but it enables us, it demands of us that we give God the glory as the one who is just and as the one who always keeps His word. And more than that, it deeply moves us to evaluate our hearts, to renew our devotion, and to praise God for all that He does in our lives. And that's a very good thing for us to consider on the last year of the night. This is a time, or the last year, the, the last night of the year. This is a time when we often get a little retrospective. New Year's Eve, especially New Year's Day, perhaps you pause a little bit, you evaluate what's happened in the past year or so, what's ahead in the coming year. A lot of people make resolutions. And I believe this doctrine demands that we make some resolutions concerning how we regard ourselves and how we draw near to God. So we're going to Consider it in that light, seeing how God's just decree of reprobation emphasizes the grace of God's election. And that's our theme. God's decree of reprobation emphasizes the grace of election. And we see, first of all, how reprobation reveals the righteousness of God's justice. But we really need to 
understand that, first of all, by defining, properly understanding this decree of reprobation. It starts, the the decree itself, understanding it well, starts by understanding the situation of mankind. And that situation began with the covenant of creation, what is sometimes called the covenant of works. That's the covenant into which God placed man at the very start, in the person of Adam. He demanded of Adam, we know that there was a probationary command, right kids? Of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Right? That was the command. But wrapped up in that command was the overarching command, trust me. Believe me, follow me, and no other. Right? That was what made that tree special. It was an opportunity to demonstrate that they're going to trust God and not themselves and not any tempter. They're going to trust Him and Him alone. If they did so, if they obeyed the command, the promise was eternal life in the presence of God with, with communion. But if they refused, explicitly God said, death was what awaited them. Immediate death in being separated from God and eventual death of the body that would follow. And of course we all failed. Every last one of us failed to obey God in Adam. When Adam acted, he acted on our behalf. When he took of that fruit, when he disobeyed God, he did so as our proxy. And not only did he do so as our proxy, he did so as our first genetic father. Which means that not only were we immediately guilty because of what he did, we also were immediately corrupted. That, again, is the blood that will out. That is the inherent inclination that exists within us to disobey, to rebel, and to sin. Now that reality about mankind must lead us to the inescapable conclusion that mankind universally deserves God's condemnation. That is the outcome of God's justice that we should expect. The default for every man, woman, and child Jesus Christ accepted because He was not in Adam. The default for all of us is to expect God to declare us guilty and worthy of His wrath. That's what we deserve. And yet, as we've seen, God decreed to save some folks and to provide for them salvation. He decided to send His Son to accept on their behalf the wrath of God that they deserved. And at the same time to obtain for us the righteousness we could never obtain for ourselves. He decreed to send His Spirit to soften the hearts of those whom He chose, and to draw them through faith to Christ. And He promised to preserve them in that faith even to the very end. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. God is entirely sovereign. Nothing can happen apart from His perfect will. So therefore, if He determines to save some, implicitly He's determining not to save others. If He chose any, then He chose not to choose others. The only other option is that God is not sovereign. 
And that's no option at all because God truly is sovereign. God is, nothing happens outside of his control. So if he chooses some, that means that he's not choosing others. And that really, in a nutshell, is the doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation is simply the idea that there are some whom God did not choose. As our our canons puts it, he decreed to leave some men in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves and not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion. Now note well that the character of reprobation is radically different from the character of election. Election is an active decree. God chooses to alter the future of those whom he has chosen. They deserve the judgment that is due to all men. They deserve a sentence of eternal death away from God's good blessings. But for the elect, God determines to actively intervene. He he determines to act to save them from what they deserve. We heard that fact implicitly in the opening verses of our scripture reading, didn't we? Romans 11, verses 2 through 5, spoke of God's decree with regard to Israel in the days of Elijah. An age when it appeared to the prophet that all of Israel had given themselves over to rebellion. That all of Israel had turned away from God. And yet God says, in mercy, He kept for Himself a remnant chosen by grace. Apart from His grace, all of them would have gone astray. All of them would have rebelled. But God chose to preserve some. God chose to keep some trusting in Him and delivered from what they deserved. Right? That's active. That requires God's intervention. But reprobation is passive. God simply chooses to allow sinful men to follow the rebellion they freely choose. To receive the punishment which because of their works they deserve. He doesn't force the reprobate to rebel against him. He doesn't refuse to let them trust in Christ. He simply permits them to do what they want to do. That's essentially what we read in Romans 1. There we read that God has created the world in such a way that all men see the reality about God and understand it in their hearts. The creation itself reveals it to them. There's not a soul who doesn't understand that God exists and that He should be worshipped. And yet they choose to suppress that truth and to hide it from their very eyes. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Notice how passive that is. He gave them up. And that reveals the righteousness of God's justice. You see, our scripture reading needs to be understood in the light of all God's Word. We hear this, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. We hear that and we're tempted to think, well, God prevented them from seeking Him and being saved. But we need to interpret that in the light of the first chapter. And when we do, we see that He gave them every reason to turn to Him. The world itself testifies to his amazing, wise, creative design of it all. 
The world testifies that every good thing we have, we've received from the hand of the one who made and superintends it all. The world testifies, the creation proclaims that we ought to serve this one from whom we receive absolutely everything we need. And men refuse. Their eyes are blinded, their ears are stuffed. But God does not hide himself from the reprobate. He simply allows them to follow the deception of Satan who seeks to blind their eyes, who seeks to close their ears. He allows them to listen to the world to whom they're eagerly tuning their hearts. The source of their sin, the blame for their condemnation lies always with man who insists on serving the created things, who insists that he will not worship God. And that means that the doctrine of reprobation doesn't reveal any cruelty in God. The author of sin is Adam, our first father. The deceiver and the tempter who led him to sin is Satan. And the blame for each one who rejects the Lord lies with that one who has chosen to reject him. Paul says so clearly in Romans 9, he says, What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If we would receive mercy, that mercy must come from God because the default for sinful man, for corrupt man, is he's going to choose to reject God every single time. And yet when we do, when men reject God, they cannot help but glorify Him. That sounds odd, doesn't it? But think about it. Reprobation shows that God, in His essential nature, is just. Paul says in Romans 11, verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. He is severe toward those who fall away. Those who refuse to hold fast to Him by faith. Those who trust something other than the Son whom He sent. Toward them He is severe, giving them precisely what He has promised. And yet for those who receive His kindness, for those who trust Him in Jesus Christ, toward them there is kindness, again, just as He has promised. God doesn't need to show mercy toward anyone. We all deserve His wrath. He would have been entirely just to consign us all to eternal condemnation. And yet... He sets the opportunity before everyone by, by creating the world the way He did. And by allowing those not chosen to do what they desire to do. And then He shows Himself faithful and just. How then do we respond to that? Beloved, our immediate response to that reality of reprobation ought to be fear and respect toward God for His justice. God said from the start, rebellion will cost you life eternally. It will cost you your physical life, the original gift given to Adam, and it will cost you your spiritual life as sin cuts you off from God. God said that and He is true to His word. Therefore, let us 
fear coming under the condemnation of God. Let us dread the thought of spending an endless future away from God and from His goodness. Let us regard it as unthinkable. But at the same time, let us glorify Him that He is true to His word, that He is utterly faithful. He promised He would judge sin. He will judge sin. He promised the cost of rebellion would be death, and death it will be. We can trust His word. And that means... That means that we can trust His Word. We need to go from that fear that dreads God's justice to the fear that involves respecting God, trusting God, believing His Word. Because not only did God promise rebellion will result in death, He also promised that none who turn to Christ will ever be turned away. That none who trust in Christ will suffer for their sin, that none who seek His salvation will be turned away. And He is faithful to His Word. And that means that just as He is faithful to those who persist in their rebellion, He will be faithful to those who turn to Christ. So we must respond by recognizing that we can trust Him. We need never doubt the mercy and the faithfulness and the grace of our God. But rather we should adore His mercy because what the reprobate receive is what we deserve. And if we receive anything better than that, we have received infinitely more mercy than we could ever ask for. So praise Him and thank Him and be sure where you stand with Him. That's the other point to this. Because the response of fearing the Lord and trusting Him and praising Him, that assumes that you're elect. And we're called to seek that confidence. In fact, reprobation, the doctrine of reprobation, absolutely insists that we know where we stand with regard to election. I, I sometimes joked with my catechism students, you know, we, we don't have a special handshake. We don't have a hidden tattoo somewhere, you know, an E for elect or an R for reprobate. We can't walk around the catechism room and go, elect, elect, ooh, reprobate. Elect, elect, we can't do that. And God has chosen to not allow us to do that for our good, right? But we can tell whether one person in particular is elect or reprobate, and that's the one we see in the mirror. And knowing that for certain must be our response to this doctrine. This is a decree that promotes the humility of self-evaluation. And that's the last thing we need to see here. How does election make itself known? Recognizing that God has decreed to allow some people to continue in their rebellion, to continue in their sin, that must lead us to ask, am I among those or am I among the elect for whom Christ came? Am I among the elect who are delivered? Am I among those who will spend forever with God? And we can know. Our, our canons notes a number of signs right at the start of Article 16 that we should seek, that decree, that, that demonstrate that we're among the elect. It talks above all else of a living faith in Christ. What is a living faith in Christ, children? 
It's really not difficult. It just means that we know what Jesus said about himself, about who he is and what he came to do. And we believe that to be true. But not only that, we believe that he did it for us. We believe that he came and lived and died and rose and ascended for me. Not just for others, but for me. And along with faith comes an assured confidence of heart. Because if we really believe that Jesus did that for me, then we can be confident. Not in me. Right? I can't be confident in me. How many times do I need to repent for the same stinking sin over and over again? I can't trust me, but I can trust Jesus. And if I'm trusting in Jesus, then I can be confident. Along with that is a peace of conscience. Because it doesn't rest in me, but it does rest in Christ who's already paid for my sins. That means there's nothing remaining for me to pay, nothing remaining for me to feel guilty about. And if that's the truth, if that's what's in my heart, then I should have a zeal for childlike obedience. We heard it this morning. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why? Because we love him. Because he did all of this for us. Because he delivered us from ourselves. Therefore, how can we not show him our thankfulness? And the best way we can do that, the clearest way we can do that, is to confess him and to obey him. Right? And so we begin glorying in God. We begin delighting to give Him worship, delighting to give Him praise, delighting to tell others about Him. But understand, these things do not happen for those who are not elect. Oh, to be sure, people who are reprobate and want to fit in put on a good show. But second, or 1 Corinthians, both chapter 2 and chapter 12, tell us quite clearly No one can confess Christ as Lord. No one can truly trust Him as Savior without the work of the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't send His Spirit to those who aren't elect. And that means no one can have true confidence in Christ if they are not among the elect. And no one can have peace within their conscience unless they are among the elect. And no one can truly obey Christ. I'm not talking about outward obedience. I'm talking about obedience that flows from the heart. Obedience that flows from love for God. You cannot have that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But if you have these things, then that demonstrates that the Spirit is at work within you. Ephesians 2 makes it very clear. Even the faith by which we are saved, the faith that joins us to Christ, is a gift of God that no one may boast. Right? So for the very simplest work that we're called to do, we have to rely on God. And He's not going to give that work that joins people to Christ to those who are not His, those whom He has not chosen. That's a humbling thing to remember, isn't it? That all of these things in which we take comfort, all of these signs that give us confidence are signs that we have not done this. They're signs that God has done this within us. That He is the one who has drawn us to Himself. But what if? What if on January 1 you take that walk, you do that introspection, you evaluate your heart and you don't find good things? You find that you've been resting on your works and your appearances. You find that you lie in bed awake at night, wrestling with doubts and fears, dreading death, dreading coming before the Lord. What then? Well, our canons wisely warn us we must not be alarmed 
in that case by God's decree of reprobation, much less ought we to count ourselves reprobate, but rather we must persevere in the use of the means God has given while awaiting God's grace. What does that mean? It means, above all, these means. Hearing the preaching of God's word and worshiping among God's people but also the private means He has given us, which is to say, spending time reading and studying God's Word. Or if you have trouble reading, then listening to it as someone else reads it. Spending time in prayer to God. Surrounding yourself with God's people, the fellowship of the saints. Openly repenting of your sin. You see, sometimes God works dramatically to take a a Saul and make him into a Paul, to, to turn someone's life 180 degrees around all of a sudden. But more often, more often it is a subtle, stuttering change where we turn bit by bit, moving forward two steps and backward one, coming a bit more to know and to love the Lord even as we wrestle with those old sins. But He promises us Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's God's promise. As we spend time in that word, it's going to have an effect. It's going, to, it's going to work in us. It's going to transform us. And he promises that for those on whom that word is at work, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. In other words, you will be filled with joy, with celebration. Because God will work so powerfully within you. As Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not I may give you, not it's possible that, no. Come to me and I will give you rest. He promises. And as we've seen from the doctrine of reprobation, we can trust His promises. He never fails. So trust Him. And persist in using his means. And soon you will begin to see those fruits of election. You will begin to see that work of God within you. And again, what if we see some fruit? We see that faith. We see a bit more confidence within us. But the fruit we see is weak. It's small. It's sparse. What then? Well, that gives us even less cause to be frightened by this doctrine. Not to say that we should be content with little fruit. Not at all. But we should be confident because we're seeing fruit. And we should fall to our knees all the more fervently, recognizing God has begun this work within us. Right? And Philippians 1 verse 6 says that He will not begin that work and not bring it to completion. But at the same time, Peter says, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Which means we fall to our knees and we ask God to to work powerfully to bring this work to completion. We fall to our knees and we ask God to give us a passion for His Word and a passion for growing in Him and, and a longing to spend time in prayer and to turn our hearts and our lives away from these sins that have long held us captive. And then believing that He will hear us, do it. 
Set a time each day to pick up that word and pick it up. Set a goal to read so much scripture and don't just read the words but really meditate on them. Spend time in prayer with God. Even when you don't know what to say or you find your mind wandering, bring it back and spend more time with Him. Surround yourself with people who will lead you in the way of godliness and not with people who will lead you in the way of worldliness. And God answering your prayer will give you not just a little fruit, but a lot of fruit. Not small and sickly fruit, but rich and abundant fruit by which you will gain absolutely great assurance. Remember what we heard in Romans 11.23. He's talking about Israel, those who've been cut off, those who've turned away because of uh, disbelief. He says, but even they, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So if you've just been a hypocrite, you've just been going along for the ride, He promises if you turn back, if you through prayer and through that little faith that you have rest in Him, He will graft you in and He will bring forth from you rich fruit. The response we must not have. The response to reprobation which we must never embrace is the response of a shrug. A young man hears of God's unremitting justice, his unquenchable wrath, and he shrugs. Then he goes on doing what he was doing, pursuing whatever feels good, Embracing whatever seems right in his eyes or the eyes of his friends. A young woman hears how God gives over the lost to their rebellion and she rolls her eyes. Then she lets her mind wander to the boy that she likes or the text that she just got and she doesn't care to consider whether she might be one of those reprobate. My friends, if ever this is your response to this doctrine, you must fear You must fear, for your heart does not fear God. You must fear because you have scorned the God who one day will judge you. You must fear because if you don't fear now, you will be in terror later. There is no comfort at all for those who give themselves over to the cares of the world and do not bow trembling before the God of heaven and earth. There is comfort For those alone who turn to Christ. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Remember the context there. Paul longed for their salvation. Said he could wish himself accursed if only they would turn to Christ. But they refused. They were too intent on the works of their own hands, the commitment of their own lives, to trust in Christ, who is the only true Savior. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. But do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. 
Brothers and sisters, this is a call to evaluation, to self-examination. Let each one of us, as we start this year, examine the work that God has been doing within us. Has He given you a true and living faith? And if so, then what are you doing with it? Are you using it to tell others what He has done? Are you letting it drive you to repent of your sin and to seek a deeper knowledge of God and a closer relationship with Him through prayer? Are you asking others in your life to hold you accountable? Are you asking others to help you turn away from your sin? Are you seeking to grow closer to God? If so, rejoice! And pray that God would continue that work within you. But if you have not seen that, do not shrug. Do not roll your eyes. Do not say, I'll think about it later. There might not be a later. But pray now that God will work in your life. That God will reveal His power to transform you. That God will draw you closer to Him. And He will. And it will absolutely transform every bit of your life. But only if we ask. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I, says Jesus, will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. How can we not? For we all deserved your wrath. We all deserved your judgment. And yet you chose to save some. And you did absolutely everything necessary to effect that salvation. Father, we thank you. And we pray that you would enable each one of us to see the fruits of that election, the power of that work within us. And Lord, we pray that you would allow not one of us to rest content with fruitlessness, to rest content with the status quo, but cause us to fervently seek your help, your salvation, your transformation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us stand and sing together number 457 in our Psalter hymnal. Lord Jesus, can it ever be? We'll sing all the stanzas of 457. <clears throat>